0: It starts, I think, in kindergarten. The judging of the art, the gold stars, the comparisons and competition, the whispers of artistic promise, though not equally applied to everyone. It then continues through our early lives, slowly polluting every form of expression and creativity with this framing of competition and the stress of a performance. The writing contest, the poetry contest, the talent shows. It's all littered with this idea that some of us are talented and some of us are not. Worse, it instills in us this conception of creative expression as a sort of solo endeavor where we're left on our own to produce some sort of artifact by which we're going to be measured. Our abilities, our genius, and by implication, our very worth itself. It's an utterly ridiculous and paralyzing way to approach any form of art or creativity and no doubt explains why so many of us hesitate to engage with any type of creative pursuit, even though it's clear to everyone that self-expression is essential to the human experience and indeed the fulfilled and complete life. In this episode of Reconsidering, we're going to explore an entirely different way of approaching creativity, one that sees it not as a destination that yields some sort of artifact, but rather one that imagines creativity as an essential tool for learning, one that not only tolerates, but actually encourages mistakes, feedback, and unjudged curiosity. Our guest is Koshik Ponchal, a designer, writer, and creative director. Kaushik has worked for a variety of organizations and companies, including the BBC, Yahoo, and Apple. Born and raised in London, he's a longtime resident of Manhattan, where he lives with his wife and nine-year-old son. Over the past few years, he's developed and delivered an amazing talk, really a workshop of sorts, helping to show teams and individuals how to reconceptualize the act of creating into a journey of learning and discovery. It's a powerful message and one that we hope will resonate with you as you perhaps reconsider new ways of expressing yourself, be that writing, cooking painting, pottery, or any of the other hundreds of forms of art that make life worth living. This is Reconsidering, the podcast about life and finding ways to do it better. My name is Bob Baxley.
1: I'm Meredith Black.
0: And I'm Aaron Walter. Stay with us, and we'll be right back with our interview with Koshik Panchal, coming up just after the break.
2: Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers with insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show.
3: My name is Koshik Panchal. I'm a designer. I have been doing that for the last two decades, mainly in the digital space, designing digital products and services, but I also run, in parallel, another company that me and my wife run, which is called Biscardo. Our action is to create more just cities through creating better dialogue between communities and uh, institutions. And we use art, design, and research to do that.
2: All right. Koshik, should you uh, choose to accept this mission, we have a series of very quick questions, just like a quick response. Fire away. All right, here we go. Paper or plastic? Paper. Morning or night? Night. Newspaper or magazine? Magazine. Computer or Smartphone. Computer. Netflix or YouTube? YouTube. Speaking or listening? Listening. Read or write? Read. Hoodie or blazer? Hoodie. Disneyland or Yosemite? Yosemite. Jazz or classical? Jazz. Beauty or wisdom? Wisdom. All right. Very nice. Koshik, I'm kind of curious if you could tell us just a
0: little bit about your blog, Designing Culture. Like, you've had it going for a while now. Why did did you start it? And, like, what are you hoping to accomplish with it?
3: I realized after a while of doing this that I have actually had quite a few experiences in different realms. And also, I bumped up against a whole bunch of different issues, which are not necessarily design-related, but which are actually about how would you design culture, sort of at a higher level. So there's lots of things you can make. You can make products in the world. But the thing oftentimes I've found is that you have to actually change the predominant culture for people to accept the products that you're making. So oftentimes I've seen lots of things which got launched and no one was ever ready for them or things that happened and everyone was too late. And also just there's a lot of, you know, my work with my wife at Piscata, we've discovered a lot of things where unless you can get people into a new kind of conversation where they are not necessarily just arguing with each other, but like seeing something new, it's very difficult to actually make any kind of progress with culture because people become very fixated in their where they stand and what they believe in. And so we spent a long time trying to figure out ways to allow people to let go of those, not even consciously let go of those issues, but just be, come into contact with something that is unusual to them, and therefore talk about issues which are difficult, like gentrification or money or family or loss or big institutional problems, unions, all sorts of interesting things. And a lot of that stuff affects my professional work, but just people don't really think about it that way. So yeah, that's why I started the, the blog, was just to get ideas out into the world so people can react to them and start some kind of conversation going.
1: So you also have a practice creativity workshop. Can you describe that for us a little bit?
3: Yeah. So I did that because I realized that basically my entire career was based on the idea of being able to generate new ideas. And I realized after a while that I'd actually create a system for doing that. I just have never really consciously thought about how I do that. And then about, I don't know, like 10, 12 years ago, I sort of got into a position where I was helping other people, managing other people, mentoring people, talking to designers about like, what's the most important thing that they want to do with their careers. And a lot of it came down to, they want to collaborate with other people and they want to create new ideas. But they had like a kind of, there was always this sort of hesitation around, well, how do I do that? Because sometimes I feel inspired and sometimes I don't. I wrote the talk because I wanted people to realize that it's a professional thing to make ideas. It's not just like a nice happenstance thing that you do every so often when you feel inspired. But as a designer every day, you're actually asked on demand to generate ideas, like big and small. They don't all have to be world-changing, but some of them do. And so how do you go about doing that? And so I came up with this theory, idea, framework for doing that. And then I made this talk because I wanted people to realize that I hold up this one person, Picasso, as this person who just spent his entire life creating ideas and making things. But then I also wanted people to ground it in, like, when you go to school, you actually also go through this same process. And probably everyone at some point, to some degree, has gone through that schooling process, whether they liked it or not. And then there's this massive drop-off, either when you're 16, 18, 21, that you leave school, and all of a sudden, all of that infrastructure that was in place to help you have ideas suddenly is just like cut from under your feet, and then you're on your own. And if you're lucky, you end up in a nice company that helps you do that. And if you're not, then you're on your own. And so a big instigator for me giving the talk is to hopefully both help people see that the, you know ideas are not just like this flash in the pan thing, that you can actually generate them by going through a process, which is like your own creative process, but It's also about collaboration and doing that lots of times lets you generate more and more ideas. And it's kind of like a practice, like you get good at having ideas because if you practice it a lot, you get like everything else. And it's been very enriching giving the talk because by doing it, other people are giving me ideas about what am I doing? How is it working? And then I can feed that back in.
1: Can you explain a little bit about the format of the talk that you give?
3: So the talk is different every time. I don't actually have a script. I just drew a diagram because I like drawing diagrams. And I realized recently that that's how I talk. So I drew this diagram, which is kind of like this, it looks like a hierarchical thing, but it it allows me to like talk through each piece. And then in the talks, I actually just draw it in real time because I also want to be open to the idea that other people have ideas. The idea is it's more of a dialogue and less of a monologue and so every time i do it i'll draw something different not entirely different but just emphasize different things depending on who i'm talking to and then uh, at the end of it people also give me ideas about like what kind of tools do they use how did they meet this amazing person that mentored them or how did they create this piece of knowledge that they sort of published or put in a podcast or made a video and they always have different ways of doing that and i sort of note all those things down as well in the diagram. So at the end, it's kind of like a portrait of the conversation and less of a slide deck where I knew exactly what was going to happen when I started. How do people respond to that? It's been a kind of interesting reaction. People who basically either running the organization who never get to talk about ideas really enjoy it. And then designers sort of at a certain point or creative people I've talked to say like, oh, you've just drawn out my creative process, but I'd never thought of doing that. But the people in between are kind of stuck because they're not in either of those spaces necessarily. I didn't think I was going to find that, but that's what has been happening. And so, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing of like, you know, and at the end, I think people are kind of amused by how little they actually know their colleagues. Because I remember being one, and it was like the guy was like, "Oh yeah, you know, I do stand-up comedy." Wow. In my spare time, because I feel like that's <laughs> a way for me to do creative stuff. And all these, all the people in the room, there was like 20 other people on the Zoom call. And they were like, "Really, you do stand-up comedy? Really, you're not that funny?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a kind of an interesting thing where like it's also like these people are getting to know each other. I use this metaphor of like if you take the idea of ideas and you say like, "Okay, that's like playing tennis." Well, I like playing tennis, but, you know, during the working day, I could say, let's all stop and go to a tennis court where it's all nicely laid out. We can play tennis, or we can just go out in the street and play tennis in the traffic with all the people wandering around, right? And which one do you think is going to be a better tennis match, right? Where you're dodging cars or you went to a court? So the idea of the talk is to, like, generate the sort of mental tennis court and then allow people onto the tennis court because then... They know the lay of the land, they know where the lines are, when the net is, where the ball is, and then they can sort of bat it back and forth with each other. And, you know, that's been kind of interesting when I've talked to nonprofits about it. They're kind of really into it because day to day is like, it's a grind trying to raise money and talk to artists and do all this stuff. I think people in studios have a slightly different take on it. Yeah. How many, t- how many times have you given it now? I think it's about 10 times now. Okay. Yeah. It's like pretty variable, like the audience. I haven't been super like picky about who it is necessarily, because i just been trying to see like what effect would it have.
2: One thing that's very interesting about living through a pandemic is that it kind of changes people's focus and like, how they see life. I think it's fascinating that you are designing opportunities for community to blossom. And during this pandemic, it's a personal lesson of mine, is that investing in community is a really important thing. I, I thought it was just me, but I, I see a lot of other people kind of coming to this realization as well. When you think about designing community and opportunity for communities to grow and, and people to connect with each other, relationships to blossom, what role does that play in our lives? What role does that play in a satisfied life?
3: Well, I, I guess, you know, both me and my wife have been doing this practice at Piscata for a, a while. And I think one of the things that we've discovered is that community means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And depending on who you ask, they'll give you a different answer. So a lot of the time, what we've tried to do is set up a conversation between like a cultural institution, like a library or, you know, we work with the Brooklyn Library and a community organization and a piece of art. And what we've tried to do is say like, usually when you talk to each other, you're talking about issues. You know, there's racism issues, or gentrification, or all this stuff is happening. But what happens if we didn't talk about those directly? And what we did was make something through, you know, conversations, like what the thing we do is like these guided tours. So We get people to take us on a guided tour of a neighborhood. And it's something they're familiar with. My wife is a photographer. So she takes photographs of things that people show her. And then afterwards we go back and we say to the people, oh, let's look at these photographs together. And we've done this in Argentina, in London, in Oakland, in New York, over the last 20 years. And the surprising thing is people's reactions to looking at something, because they're not just photographs, they're not snapshots, like she's a photographer, so it's a piece of art they're looking at. And their reactions are kind of astounding. There was one guy I remember vividly where he, he ran our local diner in Brooklyn and he took us on this tour. And at one point he stopped on the journey and then he said like, oh, this is this place, this house I went to for pies." And, and he didn't take much more about it. Then when we showed him the photograph afterwards, he was like, oh yeah, that's where I realized I was an alcoholic. Oh, wow. And then he went to this whole story about how he went to these pies, he got drunk and he got nihilistic. And then at some point he realized like he had to straighten his life out. He went to AA. And so this story, he was never going to tell us the first time around, but it was a reciprocal thing of saying like, oh, you've made something beautiful of the thing you told me. And then we take this extra step, which is like, then we take those stories and then take groups of people on guided tours around neighborhoods and get them to read those stories. And so then they suddenly start looking at it as like, You know, I thought I was a 10-year resident of this neighborhood. I'm reading about this person who's lived here for 30 years, and I realize maybe I'm part of the problem, or maybe Mm -hmm. I'm part of the solution. Or, you know, I start seeing these questions very differently. And that's what I mean about making these tennis courts. You can't make things which are threatening to people. So you have to, like, do this other thing, which we call, you know, sort of art-making and research and understanding to allow them into a space where, you know, when we go in these guided tours, there's random people who are turning up. They don't know what's going to happen. They're reading these stories from other people that they don't know. But then something happens where they feel like, oh, yeah, I can really relate to that. Or this is my story of my being in this neighborhood because this has triggered this in me. And I think without that, I feel like the sort of cult of individualism is like a really kind of tough thing in our society. You know, we've been telling ourselves a story that we're all, you know, we're going to make it by ourselves and all this stuff. Like, the reality is, like, it's culture, or at least from my perspective, it's culture that actually matters.
2: What does that mean? What does culture mean to you?
3: It means that it's a space where people can have a conversation, right? It's a space where people don't feel like they have to go to war with each other or win or lose. And the more spaces in our built environment, you know, more and more of those things are being taken away. Like, like in our neighborhood, our local diner shut down. Well, you can look at that just as, oh, that's a store that shut down. Or you can look at that as culture. Like the person who ran that place built a culture and then built a space to allow people to come in and have a conversation about lots of different things. Without those things and without people realizing that those things are valuable, then we suddenly just all retreat into our, you know, here's our online space and we only talk to people we know and, I'm sure you're very familiar with all that, right? But there's a lot of work to making those spaces. It's a very roundabout route, and you don't know what you're going to get, and it's not a fix. We're not trying to fix culture. We're just trying to get people into a conversation where they can even talk about it to some degree.
0: Yeah, one of the things I loved about the workshop when I was part of it, and that I love hearing you talk about with Buscada, is you know I think we tend to think about these creative artifacts as an endpoint. Like, I'm going to create this artifact, I'm going to say something with it. And... You know, your approach is really like I'm creating this artifact to try to create a conversation. You're really just creating the artifact as a way to listen, which is consistent with what you said in the lightning round that you'd rather listen than talk. I thought it was kind of interesting as well. You know, it's a really interesting mindset shift. And when I was in the workshop, it helped me kind of unlock and think differently about my own creativity. And it made me much more comfortable just putting ideas out there to try to move the conversation forward. I'm wondering like how you personally came to that reconceptualization of creativity and your own creative output, because people often think of the creative act as being so vulnerable. And th- I think that makes it hard for them to engage in it. And you just seem like totally comfortable getting things going and seeing where it goes. And it seems like it'd be a really valuable mind shift for a lot of people.
3: Yeah, I mean, you have to be happy being seen as an idiot, right? Like, to, like, <laughs> like Because most of the stuff you're going to say is not going to be good, right? But it, uh-huh. that's what I mean, like creating the space is important. And I talked to designers about like, you know, oh, you want to grow in this area, do this stuff. And I'm like, well, okay, go and look at your LinkedIn, right? And you want to be better at strategy? Like go and look at your 5,000 people in LinkedIn. Who's good at strategy? Send them an email, set up a conversation. And like, how often do you ever do that? And it's like zero, right? Because everyone's afraid of that. I'm either asking for help or I don't know what I'm talking about, but everyone doesn't know what they're talking about, right? Most of the time. Not entirely subscribe to the whole like Zen Buddhism thing, but like the the whole beginner's mind thing is very powerful. Where like having this broader perspective on things that like, you know, time is moving along and everything you thought was right five years later might be completely different. But if you just carry on thinking what I thought five years ago, then my view is pretty narrow. And I'm sort of one of these people who just likes change. I like new things finding new things trying stuff out it's not all not going to be great but whatever and yeah you're you know a bit of an idiot sometimes which you're just like yeah well i spent this money on this thing and i hate doing it now and okay but everything you do from doing that you learn quite a bit about stuff i think i wrote recently this quote of like you know it's not about getting to the top of the mountain it's because all of life is on the it's on the slopes right But like, that's a hard thing for people in a culture where it's about
0: getting to the top of the mountain. Yeah. I mean, you're sort of describing a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. It's sort of a Mm -hmm. shorthand way of what you're talking about. Have you always had that growth mindset? Do you think that's just part of your personality or was there some experience or moment where you transitioned from one to the other? Because when you've grown up surrounded by Western culture and you've had to fight all these impulses and cultural forces as well, and you seem to have found a different way of dealing with them.
3: I think initially it's just get out of jail. My parents are immigrants, right? So not hugely educated in any particular way. They escaped Africa because the healthcare system was terrible and (laughs) there were dictators all around. So they came to England and it was horrible for them, right? It was just like racism everywhere, couldn't get stuff done, didn't speak the language, all the rest of it. And part of it is like just trying to escape this, that world right? And then I think after a while, you're like, well, oh, okay, then I can shape stuff. So, okay, then how far do you take that? What can you change about the world? Like initially, it's like, oh, I find I can influence some people on my project by doing a thing. It was interesting. I had this conversation with someone this week, and the person was telling me, oh, you know, I'm working on this project. I really wish I'd done this thing, but I didn't do it. And then I wish I'd done this other thing, but I, I didn't do it. And I knew things would be better. And I was like, what you're describing is becoming a leader, right? Because you're describing doing more than your job and all of those things are uncomfortable, right? And it's, it's it's this first step into like realizing you can change the world or at least change your context. But all of those things are uncomfortable to do because one, no one else is telling you to do them. Step one, which is horrible feeling for most people, because they want that security. Not anything wrong with that. It's just it's nice to have that. And then step two, you feel like you're overstepping your bounds, or someone's going to come down on you a ton of bricks or whatever. But you know, after a while, you realize, well, but people do appreciate it when things go smoother. Or it's not even like just going the extra mile. It's like coming up with your way of doing things you have to sort of break through that uncomfortableness of I haven't done this before because every step, if it's just the same for me, I'm extremely bored. So it's find something new, different, harder to do, which I guess is this like growth mindset, but it's the stuff you learn. I just wrote this whole thing about this, like, you know, doing this thing my son, Luca, where I have been doing soccer training with him. Yeah, And he doesn't want to play in a team, which is fair enough. And then I'm a big soccer... I, I, I think when I was a kid, I could have gone for a trial at a Premier League team in England. And then my parents said no. Really? For whatever reason. Wow. Yeah. So I could have been... like, I could be a very different person right now, right? And so I've always been into like the mechanics of stuff. And so when I started teaching him how to play soccer, it was not like, oh, let's just try this, kick the ball around. I was like, well, let's really try and teach you something. And I did this game with him recently where he became pretty good at it. And I said, like, okay, now we're going to put these targets in the top left and top right past the goal. And that's really hard to hit. And we're going to try it for a while, right? And what I thought was going to happen was he's going to get really frustrated and just, like, be, oh, okay, we're just not going to try this. But what actually ended up was he would spend – he would hit, like, 150 shots. He would hit maybe one time out of 10. But the one time he hit gave him this, like – that is real progress. Yeah. It's not just by my dad telling me I'm better. It's like, I know I'm better. There's a difference, right? And that's what I think about my growth. It's like, I'm not waiting for other people to tell me I'm better. I need to do something to prove that. I was shocked that he would—he was willing to go through this whole thing. And then I would ratchet it up, make it harder and harder. And he would just keep going. I would never say, oh, good job. It's just like, he can see, like, either you hit the target or you didn't, or you got close. But literally... Out of 150 shots, all, I would say, 120 in the goal. Yeah. Which is the whole game of being a soccer player, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So it's kind of like, is he going to be a soccer star? No, maybe not. But I think the thing he's learning is you try these difficult things and everything you learn around that is the valuable stuff. I've I found that. like, I've tried lots of difficult things. Have I succeeded in all of them? Probably not. But I've learned a ton. But if I sell for like, I know I can do this. Let me just do it. I get more and more bored and potentially do a worse job.
1: You've got one kind of way of thinking at things, but I think there's a lot of people out there who don't feel as comfortable going out of their safety zone, so to speak, or perhaps don't have a mentor or somebody to encourage them to jump out of their safety zone and try something. So my question to you is like, what advice can you give to people who either don't have that support system or don't have
3: that kind of self-motivation, where would you tell them to start? I may seem confident, but I am racked with anxiety most of the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think most designers are. I just come off as like, oh yeah, this will pick it out, right? But um, so it's not it's not like an easy right. transition. I, I would be lying if I said it was like easy for me to do. But I think part of it is start with the stuff that you control. Mm-hmm don't go and try and like go to the moon tomorrow, right? It's like, start with the stuff you control. Like you enjoy drawing, start drawing. You enjoy writing, start writing. Do you have to show it to anyone? No, you don't. But if you don't do it, you're not going to get any better at it. It's like, there's a great Neil Postman quote of like, you know, if you can teach kids how to question, that's all you need to do for their education because then the rest of their life, they've learned that skill of questioning and therefore they're going to really learn stuff. And if you don't practice it, you're not going to learn it, right? So I think there is this kind of weird thing of like people set themselves goals as opposed to setting themselves challenges. And the difference between a goal and a challenge is like if you don't achieve the goal, then you're a failure. If you don't achieve the challenge, then you've got another shot at it. It's that thing that gets you out of it. I don't like doing a lot of things because they're hard, right? But I'm building this company in the middle of all this for myself, for other people, but like I have to go and get insurance for my company. And I hate that. I hate talking to insurance people. I don't know anything about it. Are they fleecing me with the money? Do I even need this? I don't know. I hated doing that, but I've learned a lot by doing it and reached out to people and did stuff that I was uncomfortable with, and therefore, I'm a bit more knowledgeable.
2: Kaushik, I think it's interesting that you said if things are the same, you get very, very bored, but you are a person who loves a process. You like a process. You like sort of a map of like, I'll do these things and I'll put in the time and the repetition. You've even built an app, a product to help you apportion your time throughout the week that I want to do this amount of creative exploration, this amount of exercise, this amount of whatever that thing might be. Not a goal, it's sort of like a challenge or a practice. Talk to us about practice and process and why that's such a powerful thing in your life. So there's two parts to it, right? One is to have
3: ideas you need to be prolific, which means practicing, right? Like whatever it is, practice that thing. But then you also have to just try other things, things that you don't know about or things that you're not comfortable. And you have to do that in parallel. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, like you start, I start, at least I do, start losing motivation for the practice. Like what's the purpose of all this stuff? And then how do you apply that practice to other things? It's like one of my joys when I read a book and then I read another book, and that book mentions the book I just read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that just makes me feel so happy that, like, <laughs> look, I just read about this thing, and then I this person's, like, referencing that book. The practice is reading. I'm reading lots of stuff because only if you read, I don't know, 60, 100 books a year, are you even going to have that serendipity? If you read two books, and then you read another book. Chances are they've got nothing to do with each other, right? And then the, the other book was about economics. And the book I was reading, uh, the book they mentioned, is from the design world. Oh, wow. It's not like, yeah, if you just read all economics books, I'm sure they're going to be self-referential. But like, it's the this author who's got nothing to do with what I know about. They're a Zen Buddhist, or they're a, you know economist, or they're an agriculture person, or they're whatever. But then they're referring to this thing they read because they found it fascinating.
0: Yeah, Bill Gates talks about that a little bit about uh, trying to fill in the gaps in your knowledge and that that's how you really learn is when you start connecting all these dots.
3: Yeah. I had this amazing moment, Serendipity. Like one of my favorite filmmakers, Adam Curtis. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen his work. He just released a new film. Like, the entire thing is him telling these big arc narratives with lots of serendipity. He actually has access to the entire BBC archive of video footage that they've ever had. And then he basically creates these montage films with music and a narrative. It's amazing. It's well worth checking. It's not everyone's cup of tea because it's quite hard going. It's like reading a difficult book. But, you know, if you're into those kind of connections. And at the end of it, the credits were rolling down. And then the producer was a person I worked with at the BBC like 20 years ago. (laughs) I texted her saying, like, did you work on this? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, wow, what are the, ch-? you know, but it just felt like, oh, that's a full circle kind of thing. But like his films are all about that sort of these things you don't think are at all connected are actually deeply interconnected.
0: What was his name again? Adam Curtis. Oh, yeah, yeah. What's what's an example of one of his films? It's one of the titles. I think his new
3: one is called I Can't Get You Out of My Head. Okay. It's like there's six part episodes, an hour each, and like each one is basically a film. By itself and then he knits it all together. But that kind of interconnection of being very wide thinking, but then being good enough to have be able to thread a narrative through a lot of it because you've read enough around it. And he's like an amazing source for me. Like of you'll be like, oh, this this author or this, you know, Max Weber, read about him. He's like this incredible psychologist, right? I find that duality of like being prolific, like you have to keep doing the things because otherwise you just forget them, like the whole questioning thing. Like if you forget to start questioning, then you start to start taking like, anything, but then being wide ranging, because then you can start making the interconnections between all of that practice.
0: So Koshik, across your career, you've kind of uh, migrated from, I mean, you do stuff with your wife, you're, you're writing and doing stuff on your own, and then you've worked in big companies and big agencies. So your creative practice really moves pretty seamlessly between individual creativity you know, partnership collaborations and then these larger scale collaborations. I wonder if you have given much thought to like what it means to be creative in those different contexts and maybe different approaches you've had to use yourself or do they require different levels of energy? Do you think one of them is more innovative than others?
3: I don't know. I think they kind of all sort of to some degree boil down to like relationships, like how you connect to other people. It's funny, someone today was showing me this like new thing of like what's it like, object oriented UX design, right? And they were like, "Hey, here's this is a new thing. It's going to solve everything. It's going to get designers <laughs> and developers all to work at the same time." And I was like, "Oh, that's interesting, but like I feel like there's 50 different tools to use at different times, right? And sometimes it's a tool to get everyone on the same page and build a relationship between them. So they all feel like they've all contributed equally and are all part of the vision of this thing. And other times it's tools to efficiently move through something. So you can like clearly say like, well, because we did this, this, and this, therefore this is a valid thing. I like it when there's a through line, when I can take like a very high level thing that I did with an executive and say like, hey, you set these three strategies and then filter all the way down to a small UI decision we're making and be like, hey, because you said this, look, I can make the through line back down to here. That's why I decided it wasn't because I personally thought this was a good idea. It's because that's the way we set, and I can show you that. It's bringing people along for the ride, right? Because oftentimes this is, it's not just designers we work with. We work with all sorts of people all different coming from all different perspectives. And I think that's why the relationship between me and my wife works is because she's a professor of urban studies and I'm a designer, right? And so we don't really, there's not a huge amount of overlap there, but there's a lot of respect there. And we have to create a space where we can have a dialogue about that and then come to some common thing. And I think that's mostly, you know, large companies or even small companies. It's this, like, how do you create a space for, once again, come back to, like, how do you have this conversation that everyone can take part in, everyone feels heard, everyone contributes to it, and then they can see how that sort of filters through everything else you're doing. Because, you know, in, in the end, it's, I don't know, it always comes down to people, like how motivated can you get people to actually do this thing that you think is a good idea? That is the dependency of whether you're successful or not, to a large degree. Even if it's just me working by myself, how can I get myself to a point where I feel good with the conversation that's going on in my head, because I'm sure, I don't know if you guys have this, but like, I have like several conversations going on in my head of <laughs> like uh, the and the enthusiast and there, and like, at some point I have to like fuse them all together and be like, okay, guys, like, which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's move forward with that. i got
0: a committee so, meeting in my head.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, depending on how you get up in the morning, right? It's, it's a different voice that's sort of uh, ringing away there. Yeah.
1: What have you learned from watching Luca?
3: He is totally open he doesn't think about failure Mm. in the way that I think about failure. I've, I've culturally learned about failure, but I'm not sure I necessarily believe
0: Mm -hmm. he doesn't
3: think about it that way at all. And I can slowly see culture seeping in and telling him, oh, by the way, that's winning and losing and all this sort of stuff. But up until now, and I've really been trying very hard to like keep all that stuff at bay because right now he's like the perfect collaborator for me, right? We do a soccer podcast together, right? And it's kind of like, I would never do that by myself, but because he's so open to different ways of doing the podcast or different ways of thinking about how to do it, that is how I really wish I was all the time. But he is just naturally that way all the time. It's not that he's like some super genius. It's just, I think most kids are that way and then over time, through testing and evaluating and all this other stuff, they s- start to learn that, like, oh, well, what about the goal? Like, How am I going to get to the top of the mountain? I've done a whole bunch of reading around, you know, one particular author is Alfie Cohen. He's, like, a fairly well-known psychologist. And, like, he appeared on Oprah. This is, like, a bizarre thing. But the most bizarre thing about the Oprah show was that, unlike most people who come on and just express an opinion, she was like, well, prove it. I'm like, when do you ask any of these other quacks to prove their ideas? But like, she was like, prove it. And so he did this whole thing where he got kids to come in. I think they got to design a game or do a puzzle. And one of them were told, like, oh, when you finish, then you get a prize. And the other set were told, like, well, you just, just do it and see where you end up. And the kids who were like told, like, oh, well, there's an end point, they just all sort of stopped or even finished early. The kids who weren't told anything carried on and then added more to the games and redesigned them themselves because they didn't realize that there was no goal to doing any of that stuff. And I find that stuff fascinating because that, that to me is creativity to a large degree of like not knowing where the boundary is. There's this guy who runs Alessi, which is this Italian design firm. He has this like kind of pretty way out. Like he has a, v- it's a very successful company. Like they make Philip Stark lemon squeezes and like all this stuff. But he has this thing where they intentionally make ideas which are unmarketable just to see where the boundary is. So they make things which they know, they'll hire Philippe Stout and be like, just go crazy, make something, but then they'll be like, oh, okay, that's too far. But actually, if we pull it back a little bit, that's actually where the sweet spot is. If they kept sticking with the sweet spot, then it would go further and further back and then they wouldn't be able to sell. I think one of their designers designed um He's a fairly famous British designer and he, he designed this teapot for them and it sold for like $800 or something like that. Then he went and designed the same thing for Target and sold it for like $40. Unless he, over the years, made more money than Target did. Wow. They didn't need to sell <laughs> as many, they just needed to sell them at $800, right? And I think that's, that's the key is like at the time that teapot was seen as like, oh my God, this is avant garde and well worth paying for it. Over time, they tried to commoditize it, but it still didn't really work. So that idea of like, you know, like, look at, he just doesn't know the boundary. And sometimes that's frustrating, but oftentimes that's kind of fascinating because it's like, like this week we uh, watched this thing. I don't know why I was watching it. It It's like die-cast racing, like watching little Hot Wheels go. But then this guy, (laughs) he designed this entire track out of these things Watching it was fascinating because it's the thing that sport gives you. It's like, it's completely unknown who's going to win this race. And they, they made it like a TV show. And then Luca was like, well, why don't we do that? And I was like, you're right. Why don't we do that? And, you know, the, the cost to do what they had done on that, this TV show was like 50 bucks.
0: Yeah, wow.
3: <laughs> and so then we constructed this entire mountain and a whole track and a whole thing just because it's interesting to see how difficult that is to do and you know, the end result is it's entirely random every time. That's what I've learned, right? It's like, you don't, you know, it could have been a complete disaster and super frustrating.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny hearing you talk about the Alessi stuff with uh, trying to create something that's so far out of the boundaries. It reminds me of the, the famous Picasso quote of it takes one a long time to become a child. Yeah. And it sort of ties back to what you said about, there was something about your experience growing up where you began to see the value of challenging the status quo. Is there more to it than just the culture? Do you think, like, why is the culture so invested in keeping people inside this box? Because, I mean, I see it leading a creative team. People, I'm trying to give them permission all the time to think bigger. It's like they're a bird in a cage and the door's wide open and they're like, ah, I'm not really quite sure. Why is that?
3: I think a lot of it is like power and control, right? Like at, at the highest level, it's like for a long time, people have maintained control through you know different dynamics and then to some degree things have been slightly unlocked recently but it's you know like my favorite movie is like the, one of one of my favorite movies is the matrix right it's the perfect analogy for like now of like people are happy inside the matrix and then you even have one of those characters in the movie saying like just put me back in because this outside world is horrible i just want to go back in because i know i know exactly what's going to happen being out Of the matrix is kind of like this like i was saying it's like that uncomfortableness i read this book recently the war of art and it's all about that like friction or you know this difficulty of like once you can get through that barrier the work is relatively easy whatever it is writing making but it's breaking through that which is the thing that stops creative groups doing that, right? It's like, I always do this exercise where it's like, okay, tell me the use case. Now tell me the outcome. And then I explicitly say, tell me the best possible outcome. But the outcomes people tell me are the things they are with still inside the box. And so if it's always still inside the box, the things we're gonna make are only gonna be incrementally better, right? If it's outside of the box, maybe it will fail, but you'll learn a lot by doing that. It's not like fail quickly or whatever, all that stuff. It's like literally imagining something better than what exists today, which I think is like a big thing. Like, you know, we've had communism, we have capitalism. My big thing is like, imagine something better, not just what you're against, but what are you for? Right. And then that, that seems like a big thing where too much in the bubble thinking is leading to that like, well, what's that next breakthrough? I don't know what that is necessarily, but it's like, it's going to be a different way of looking at stuff, which involves maybe people making a lot of failures to try different things.
0: Yeah. It's just giving themselves permission to experiment, I think is what's so, so challenging for people.
2: It's a risky thing. You know, adults are so results oriented. And when you're focused on results, you only think about the risk of being creative or trying something. And You know, we often say to children, I'm a parent of two young kids. And I was like, did you think of the consequences? No, they don't think of the consequences. They think of the act of the moment. And that's a very freeing way of seeing the world and, uh, you know, enables you to be more creative.
3: Imagine just even the cultural paradigm of nine to five work, right? I've done this a lot in the past where I will show up at like 11 o'clock at work. (laughs) Right. And this is just, it's not that I haven't been working. I just haven't been working in the box you gave me to work in. Like even that small break from the cultural norm puts people into this kind of state of like questioning every, everything of like, well, why am I working? to five mm-hmm. or you're not working or whatever it is. Recently I gave it the sustainable creativity talk. The number one thing that people said that helped their creativity was going for a walk. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. But do people ever give themselves permission in the middle of a work day to be like, you know what, even now in COVID, right? When there's no one to look, check up on you, go for a walk. The friction there is really high because there's just so much like, well, what's the point of that? How am I gonna be productive? What goal is that achieving? But internally they know they're having this inner dialogue which is like, well, when I go for walks, I feel much better. But that's not something that anybody else controls, right? Like you are an adult, you just walk out the door and you can go for a walk. I find that hard with myself, right? Like I'm like, I'm in control of this situation. But even so, th- there's all these like questions of like, well, wh- wh- what's the point of that? Where's that going? How productive is that? Could you be spending your time differently? All this sort of stuff. When in reality, you'll probably waste half an hour getting a coffee.
0: You're working from home now in the pandemic. Is it your sense that the company you're working with now, do you think that they're more or less creative and innovative being fully distributed at this moment? Or do you think they were better in the office together?
3: I think in the consulting space, it is a lot more about relationship building. So I think the creativity happens. I'm not sure if it's necessarily in the office, but it's that, you know, read the room, body language, you know, 70% of whatever is like, you know, nonverbal. There's a lot of that. The work I prefer to do is ideas-based, right? We don't know what it is, and therefore there's a lot of fumbling around trying to figure out what it is. I feel like in companies where it's much clearer what it is that you're making there's probably a very high degree of efficiency of getting that thing done like i said it's like different tools for different jobs right like you know when i think about something like spotify like not having office for them it's kind of like a factory there right like they have squads and they're doing this stuff and they're doing the feature release and here it is and great so now the company doesn't have to pay for the factory you're paying for your own factory in your house, which is you know, a potential outcome. Or maybe people will be like, you know what, I really do need to be in that space because that space was important. I've noticed this a lot with online right now is any time where I set up a meeting and the work is done quicker, so say it's a half an hour meeting, it takes 10 minutes to discuss the issue, people will stay on the extra 20 minutes just to talk. Just to, because, I feel, I personally feel a large part of the reason why you go to work is not to be efficient and get everything done. It's to interact with other human beings. It's not that all those conversations are creative. It might just be like about your kids or about your dog or whatever it is, but it's something different, which gives you a space to be goofy and have a different kind of idea. Whereas right now it's like, it's pretty dead. Unless you're like me, I'm like, no, you know, literally I'm going to make a talk and then I'm going to email people, hundreds of people. And then go and give the talk to create a different space.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be pretty proactive about it.
3: Yeah, it's not a it's not a natural thing to do because you're waiting for the next meeting. You're not creating the next meeting necessarily.
0: So we're gonna wrap up, but I've got one last question for you. If you just take a moment and you try to remember the Koshik at 25 and you really bring forward for yourself Koshik is 25, mostly people would ask you, you know, what would current Koshik say to 25-year-old Koshik? What advice would you give your younger self? But I'm gonna ask you the other way around. What advice do you think 25-year-old Koshik would have for the Kaushik today?
3: So I have, a, I have a good story about this, which is when I literally was 25, I got my first job. It was developing stuff for CD-ROMs, right? I could code to some degree and design for it, but I wasn't a coder. I was a designer. We did this project where it was like, oh, you're gonna, we're going to make a database. And I'm like, a database? Okay. <laughs> How am I going to do that? I remember on the very first freelance job I got, I worked with this great guy who was an awesome developer. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna ask my boss, I can't do this, but you should hire this guy for two days and he'll teach me how to do it. And then we'll get this project done on time. And then from there on in, I'll also know how to do that stuff. Thinking back on it, you know, like kids, I didn't really think, oh, that's career suicide. I just thought, I need to solve this problem. And this is the way I see of solving this problem. And I feel like that's the advice I'd give myself right now. It's like, don't try and do everything by yourself. Because even though I feel like oh, I have much more experience now, I can do all stuff, you know, learn stuff. There's, if I want to do different things, that means by nature, I'm not going to have done it before. And therefore that involves me talking to people, creating a conversation, getting people to help me to do the thing I want to do, right? And I felt like I learned that lesson. You know, part of it was desperation to keep the job, right? But part of it was also just like, yeah, but I want to get this thing done. I want to actually learn how to do that thing. And I think as you get older, it gets harder and harder. I definitely found that to like be like, oh, I don't know something. Let me go and ask someone and sound dumb because I don't know something. Because my entire persona sometimes at work is I know everything because you, that's what you're projecting out to the people you're working with. Otherwise they'll start losing confidence in like, what, what's going on. But then the, the second you want to do something new, that resistance is like, well, we could do something new, but I don't know about that. So we're not going to do that. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you.
0: Meredith and Aaron, what'd you guys think of our time with koshik
1: he's so calm. It's so nice to hear his voice. and (laughs) So I really liked that. But also, I really like his discussion around community. He says very specifically, community means a lot of different things between a lot of different people. And he's not going out there and trying to define it. He's kind of going out there and exploring what community is. And so it's just something I kind of took in the back of my head as, you know, not everything has to be so prescriptive about how you go through life and how you explore things. And so- That was the one thing that really stuck out to me.
2: And the work that he and his wife are doing or have done around community and spaces and the stories that are present there, I find that just really interesting and inspiring, very creative. Most people, when they're thinking about community, they're not thinking that deeply and philosophically. They're thinking more like, hey, I'm going to get some people together around a particular topic. But the way that they invest in community and think about how might we bring people together And especially the part where how might we see from other people's perspective and bring together a diverse group of people, that's really an important thing for us to do. Because today, like we often kind of retreat to our own corners where it's like our own world where we hear the same perspectives that we hold from folks who are like us. And I think it's really important to find ways to break out of that.
1: You know, one of the things he also said was, I may seem competent because, Bob, I think you called it out, you know, like you're praising him for what he was doing. And he goes, I may seem competent, but I'm actually racked with anxiety. And it yeah. was just this like a really <laughs> nice, refreshing thing to hear, because I think all of us go through our days, you know, trying new things or trying new hobbies or exploring different things. And it might all visually appear great, but on the inside, we're kind of all going through our own experiences.
0: You know, full disclosure, obviously, like I've known Koshik for 20 years. We've worked together in three different jobs. He and I work together now, and it's awesome. So I get to talk to him almost every day, which is terrific. Everything he said in the podcast is exactly how he goes through his work day as well. I had him come in and give his workshop to the team at my current job a few months back. And it was actually really phenomenal because he just comes in and does it kind of in real time. He just broadcasts video from his iPad and he just draws the presentation out about the getting started with creativity and make show and learn and he just again kind of draws the whole thing in real time so it's sort of seemingly improvisational but it's not because he's done it enough times so it's a really phenomenal workshop and the thing that just really hit me and I you know I mentioned it in the intro is just this idea of just make the thing there's this concept in art called the primal mark which is when you go from a completely blank canvas to having that first mark on the canvas. And more than anyone I've ever known, Kaushik just boldly moves into making that primal mark and just getting started because he has so much confidence that he's going to be able to make it better with the additional drafts. So he has seemingly now, I don't know what's going on inside him obviously, but you know, as an outsider watching it, he has less fear about just getting started and putting something on the blank page Than anyone I've ever worked with. It's just really empowering for me personally as someone who writes and designs and creates and has that zero to one anxiety all the time. He really also lowers the bar about creative expression. And it's not about trying to make the thing and get the artifact accepted. It's not about that. It's that you make the artifact as a way to express yourself so you can learn something. All these things are just sort of conversation starters. And we've seen that on the show over and over, like somebody writes a book and then they go on the book tour and it's I mean, maybe to some degree, it's about promoting the book because there's an economic interest in that, but I also know having written a book myself that a big part of writing a book is just that you learn so much you're transformed by the process of writing the book and for me, at least when I flip the bit on creativity and I think of it through that lens, it just you know eliminates ninety five percent of my
2: anxiety and it makes it so much easier to get started yeah Koshik, he is one to trust the process and it comes through in the way that he described his work. Everything is very much about here is the process. And he thinks about the process itself, you know, as much as he thinks about what we're going to create, but he thinks about how are we going about the creation process. And there's a key piece in there that gives him that liberation to create, to make that primal mark, which is suppressing judgment and recognizing that judgment when it's misplaced, it will absolutely destroy a creative process. And I think there's a bigger life lesson that can be extrapolated from that, that that noise, that anxiety that we have in our head is that overactive judgment piece of our brain that tells us this narrative, often a false narrative about the quality of our decision-making, the quality of like how we're living our life and what we're doing and what it all adds up to. It steals the creative spirit from our life just as it will steal the creativity from a process. And so I really enjoy that about how he approaches his work. It's an open system where lots of people can participate and it's okay to not know what the outcome is because the process is enough.
1: He mentions that you have to break through the uncomfortableness. And I think that's just a friendly reminder to all of us on a daily basis of like a post-it note I just wanna like put on my desk. Because I think it's true. I think a lot of us get scared to do things and get scared to actually break free from the process or break free from something that might be prescriptive and might be more comfortable. And so I don't know, that just really resonated with me. And it's something I'm going to think about daily.
2: Yeah, me too. And this is something that we've taken on as a bit of a mantra in our family. So my wife and I and our, our two sons, we recently went on a little trip to Moab, Utah, where we. Did things like we did 15 miles together on bikes and then we hiked and then we biked some more and our kids are 8 and 11 at the time now 8 and 12 and at the end of that we said who can do hard things raise your hand if you can do hard things and everybody raised their hands I think that's a really important thing to like realize I am capable of more than I think that I am capable of I can do hard things and when I do hard things when I push myself Beyond my limits and out of my comfort zone, that's when I feel most accomplishment, pride, growth, and I feel happiness. I feel happiness when I do those things. Yeah. So, look, just to close up here because uh, we're
0: running out of time, I'll just I'll say that one of the things I really enjoyed about Koshik's talk, and one of the things I in his interview with us, one of the things I really enjoy about being around him and working with him, is again this kind of pivot to creativity not as an expression or accomplishment, but as a way to learn. And I think that whole idea has come out in us making this show together. Like we didn't really know what we were doing at the beginning. It was, well, let's just make a show and see what happens. And Koshik, you know, we want I want to thank him in particular because he was one of a handful of people. I think there was four, maybe five, that participated in some prototype interviews with us before we really settled on this format and got the three of us together and kind of worked out what the show was really about. So Koshik, again with a few other folks, actually was gracious enough to interview with us twice. Um, so, you know, what he was talking about it, you just make the mark and you learn from it and you start producing stuff has been super true of our experience, making the show. We've learned so much from making it. It's almost like we make it in order to learn these things. It's such a much more empowering and uplifting way to approach creative expression and creating something rather than feeling like you have to worry about impressing others or making something that's going to be well-received or getting likes or whatever it is. All that stuff, like, just really, really resonates with me. Make, share, learn, rinse, and repeat.
1: Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.